Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. In 1517, a young intellectual, living and working in the university town of Wittenberg, proposed a debate. He used the common method of the day, posting a set of 95 theses on the door of the university church. The debate centred around the Catholic Church's use of the indulgence as a fundraising tactic to repair and restore St Peter's Church in Rome. The actions of Martin Luther that day lit a spark, which became a flame, which spread across the continent of Europe and became the Protestant Reformation. In this podcast, I return to a lecture given in Temple Patrick Reformed Church in 2017. I hope you enjoy it. I'm Bob McAvoy. And this is the Semper Reformata podcast. take you back 500 years. Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk, was becoming more and more concerned about a scandal that was happening in a town very close to where he lived. A religious huckster was selling supposed spiritual blessings for money. I had thought for a moment that might have been the very first faith and prosperity teacher in the church but I can actually think of one earlier but there he was he was trading money for highly dubious spiritual blessings and that has gone on right to this day and throughout some of the regions of Germany an indulgence had been proclaimed an indulgence to raise funds for the completion of St Peter's Basilica in Rome And the cleric who was raising the funds, there's a a lot of political intrigue going on behind the scenes. One Albert, he has claims for this indulgence that are highly extravagant. Let me quote you from Here I Stand by Roland Bainton. The instructions given to the indulgence sellers declared that a plenary indulgence had been issued by His Holiness Pope Leo X to defray the expenses of remedying the sad state of the blessed apostles Peter and Paul and the innumerable martyrs and saints whose bones lay mouldering subject to constant desecration from rain and hail. Subscribers will receive and enjoy a plenary and perfect remission of all their sins. They would be restored to a state of innocence which they had enjoyed in baptism. They would be relieved of all the pains of purgatory, including those incurred even by an offence to the divine majesty of God. And those securing indulgences, buying them, 
on behalf of the dead who already were in purgatory, need not themselves be contrite or even confess their sins. Well, that was some indulgence, wouldn't it? That would get you straight into heaven with your sins all just covered up. Well, because you bought one of these. Now, the indulgence was never proclaimed in Saxony, where Luther was working. But in an adjacent area, a German called Johann Tetzel was preaching the benefits of the indulgence, and the people from Wittenberg were travelling over to pay their money and returning with this pocket full of absolutely worthless spiritual promises. Tetzel was an outrageous salesman. He played upon the fears of the simple people who believed that their loved ones, their mother, their father, their husband, their wife, their child, was being punished in purgatory. You can imagine how terrible it is to lose a loved one. To lose a relative, to lose a child would be dreadful. But then to have someone come and tell you, look, that person is in purgatory being dreadfully punished and you can help them to get out of that state simply by parting with some money think of the benefits you can imagine the anxiety it caused you can imagine how Tetzel played upon this claiming that the church would relieve the souls that are suffering in purgatory if payment was made wasn't one of his catchy wee slogans as soon as the gold in the coffer rings the soul from purgatory springs Luther was incensed by this crass display of spiritual hucksterism the thought that a person could have their sins forgiven just by paying a sum of money, with no conviction of sin and no repentance, that sort of thing was utterly repugnant to the man who had learned on his own quest to find peace of heart before God that the justified soul lives by faith and by faith alone. Tetzel's belief of salvation by money, buying your way into heaven, salvation by works at its lowest and most base level was abhorrent to Luther and abhorrent to the scriptures. So, why did Luther object? What was it that Luther believed about the biblical doctrine of forgiveness of sins that made him so strongly object to what Tetzel was doing in neighbouring time? It's important. Because as Christians, as Reformed believers, we have to understand that vital biblical teaching. And so I want you to look just for a wee moment with me at Romans chapter 5. And we're going to see what Luther would have read here. What he would have believed and what he would have confessed and what he would have taught. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. For here's one of the key teachings of the scriptures concerning this. When we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. 
Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. God has demonstrated his love for us. He has commendeth he commended his love for us and he has done it while we were yet sinners. So the first understanding that Luther would have had and the first thing that would have made him irate about the indulgence would have been the fact that the biblical uh, view of forgiveness of sins is that God demonstrates his love for people who do not deserve it and people who cannot earn it. You know, we'd have wondered about that. God loves us and demonstrates his love for us in Christ while we are still sinners. And that's good news. That's good. That's very good news indeed. Because if we are not sinners, uh, then we have no hope of eternity. We would not have wondered if it said that God had loved the, the holy angels in heaven. Those who are wise and holy and benevolent spirits. We would never have been in any way surprised if we knew that God had loved his first created beings before the fall. Our first parents while they were still in the garden. While they were reflecting perfectly his image. While they were creatures of his own creating power. But why would a holy God choose to demonstrate his love for sinners? After all, sinners are those who have turned from God's truth. We've abandoned his service. We've rebelled against his law. This, of course, was Luther's great distress on his spiritual quest. Luther was greatly burdened by the inability to uh, stem the flow of sin in his own life. He tried everything that the church offered him. He attended the masses of the church. He regularly confessed to his priest. He tortured his soul to seek assurance that his sins could be dealt with. He recognized the truth about himself, was under conviction that his heart within him was deceitful and desperately wicked and it burdened him and nothing of any religious nature that he tried seemed to help. After all, in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4 we read, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Luther knew that under the law he was condemned and would stand before God condemned. We're sinners who have turned from God's truth, who have rejected his law and are condemned under his law. Sinners who had been hostile to God. We went one step further. In our sin, we are openly hostile and in rebellion against the God who created us. Rather than getting better, as the evolutionists want us to believe, we are actually in open rebellion, in armed struggle, if you like, against God who created us. All of our hearts, 
all of our lives. All of that is opposed to God. We're not in repentance by nature. We're in persistent sin. We're sinners who have turned from the truth of God. Sinners who have been hostile to God in what we say and what we do. Who are involved and engaged in a warfare against him. Sinners who have incurred God's wrath. Guilty, self-condemned, hell-deserving sinners under the condemnation of God. A place where we deserve to be. Lamentations 3 and verse 39 says, Wherefore doth a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? You see, when we stand before God, we get exactly what we deserve. I remember one day going to take a funeral service for a gentleman in Newtonards, and one of his relatives said to me, You know, he was such a good father. And he was such a good husband. And he was such a magnificent grandfather. Man who worked hard all his life. He never did anybody any harm. He was a good man. And the next phrase that they said to me was, and we hope he gets what he deserves. And I confidently, without thinking, said, oh yes he will. Because under God, who is just, we will all get what we deserve. And we will get our just wages. And the wages of sin is death. We know that. Wherefore doth a living man complain? A man for the punishment of his sins. Jesus tells us that he shall say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now you might think that's all a bit harsh. You might think it's a bit difficult, a bit harsh, a bit outrageous to tell people that we are all sinners in this day and age. That was all right 500 years ago. That was all right back in the medieval days. But sure, we're living in a much more enlightened generation than what they were. But are we? I don't think so. In the book of Romans, we find great insight into this. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. It says, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. That's why we don't tend to hold seeker-sensitive services. It would be pointless. There is none that seeketh after God. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, that famous verse. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 1 John 1 and uh, chapter 8 to 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we're not prepared to admit to our sin, If we're not prepared to admit to our sinfulness, to say, I am a sinner, 
God be merciful to me, a sinner, then we can never have our sins forgiven. For Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. He came to call sinners to repentance. He died for sinners on the cross. If we're not sinners, then Christ's death is not for us. And we can never be forgiven. And we can never have eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why was Luther concerned at what Tetzel was doing? He was telling people that they could buy their way into heaven and if they can do that then why did Jesus have to die on the cross for sinners the first reason why Luther found these indulgences so objectionable of course would have been that God always demonstrates his love in Lutheran belief for people who do not deserve it and who can never earn or purchase it the second reason would have been because God's love is put into action for us at the cross go back to our verse while we were yet without strength in due time Christ died for the ungodly Verse 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God has <coughs> demonstrated his love for us. Love works in this way. God actually put his love into action for us. He sent his son to take our place on the cross, to bear on his body on the tree all of our punishment, all of our sin and all of our shame, to take upon himself the burden of our guilt and the punishment, the fine that was due to us, to die so that we would be forgiven. It was act of love. Love always has to be put into action. But it's going to be meaningful, doesn't it? When I fell in love with a wife, it's a long time ago, but I can vaguely remember it. Now I'm in love, and I have to do something about it. What am I going to do? Well, I had to tell her. That was hard. What was even worse was I had to ask her for a date. I had to ask her out. I had to put a ring on her finger, and then I had to do the worst thing of all, I had to demonstrate my love for her by going to her father and saying, can I marry your daughter? And I'll tell you something, that was a big deal. I sat in the farmyard that night for about two hours trying to pluck up the courage to go in and do it. And she said to me, go on, you'll be all right, go on. No, I can't, I can't bring myself to do it. But I had to. If you love somebody, you'll do something about it. Now, God's love, it is demonstrated for us. It is commended to us in that while we were yet sinners, he put his love into action for us. God's only begotten Son, the express image of the person of God who became one of us, who took upon himself human flesh, who became our kinsman so that he might become our surety and our redeemer. The great creator became our saviour. God's fullness dwelt in him and he bore it to the cross. 
Luther was adamant about that. His theology was centred in the cross. And Luther would have known that Jesus did not die in vain. As many as a man's death represents failure. Failure on the part of the man who has died. Failure on the part of the medical profession. Failure on the part of others to care. Many, many regrets. But when Jesus died, he died for us. And to offer someone an indulgence. To offer someone a way to buy yourself into heaven. For such dubious reasons. Is it any wonder? Luther, understanding the free gift of salvation. Would have been totally outraged at what was going on in Rome at that time. Luther knew that God has already purchased our salvation in Christ at the cross. Nothing further is needed. No indulgences, no masses, no sacrifices, no religious ordinances or Rituals or fasts can produce or procure our salvation. Those two would have been enough. Those two reasons would have been enough for Luther in his day to take the action that he did. But there is one final point that Luther would have understood very well. And it is what this saving love put into action at the cross what it achieved for sinners. For right at the very beginning of this chapter, Paul writes, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Summed up. That verse, and I suppose in verse 9, because in verse 9 Paul writes, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. It's all through him, isn't it? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation from wrath through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all through him, for he died for us. Because of his death on the cross for us while we were sinners, we are justified. We're justified by faith. Our faith doesn't save us. It's Calvary that saves us. But our faith is the God-given gift that enables us to appropriate for ourselves Christ's work on the cross. Where our sins are pardoned. Where we have been brought into a right standing before God. We have been reconciled to God by the death of his Son. And that means we have peace. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace. Reconciliation between God and man. Peace between God and man. That's what matters. Let me explain this peace to you. This peace. And you'll hear people talking sometimes, I've got a real peace, you know about this. Everybody say that to you. I've got real peace about something. Well, I'm sure they have, and I'm not doubting that. I'm sure that's important. 
But this is a different kind of peace. This is a declared peace. After a war. Imagine if two nations are fighting a war. And the war runs its course. And, and, and they decide to, to make peace with each other. They sit down at a table. And they sign the agreement. And they hold up the agreement for the whole world to see. And they declare legally the war is over. We are now at peace. Well, okay, there might be a bit of euphoria in the countries, mightn't there? It might be good to know that the war is over. They might start to ring the church bells up and down the land. They might start to proclaim uh, all the the news news teams and, and television reports and media reports will start proclaiming the peace and there'll be great rejoicing. After the Second World War, wasn't there street parties out in the street? Children were playing. It was great. We now have peace. There's this sudden sense of national euphoria. We have peace. But you see, the euphoria dies away in a few days. But the legal document that says we have peace remains never goes away I suppose nations it's an imperfect illustration for nations can break those treaties but God doesn't break treaties or covenants the fact is that we are at peace even when the euphoria has died and that first flash of feeling has gone There is a legal declaration that the war of enmity between God and man was settled at the cross. That the peace has been established. That even when we don't feel anything like being at peace in our heart, the legal status of the believer before God is that he is justified by faith and he has peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing changes that that's a fixed event that never changes we are justified by faith and we have peace with God and we are reconciled to God by the death of his son and we are being saved by his life for we have assurance of salvation Because he rose from the dead and because he lives, our expectation of eternity in heaven doesn't depend on what we pay to a priest. It doesn't depend on what we buy from an indulgent seller. It doesn't depend on an anointed prayer hanky from Benny Hinn. It doesn't depend on some dubious spiritual blessing. It depends on the fact that our Saviour died and rose from the dead and lives and we live in him and we shall be saved by his life. For as much as Jesus has risen from the dead, we have positive assurance of heaven and of eternal life. So three reasons why Luther would have found indulgences totally unacceptable. And those three reasons are very simple. Because the selling of the indulgence was 
a denial of the fact that God saves sinners who can never earn their own salvation. A denial that the work of Christ on the cross is sufficient for sinners and there's nothing can be added to it. And a denial of everything that his saving love achieved for us. Our justification, our peace with God, the assurance of salvation. All of those things are the wonderful outcome of God's love for sinners. For Martin Luther, that was a much surer foundation found in God's word than the purchase of a worthless religious artifact that could never save the soul. May God help us as we look back all those years to be as faithful to God's word as Luther was in his day.